This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello. Welcome back to The Real Thing, a podcast that is an extension of Bergen Film Club where we talk about all of the upcoming amazing cool films and the past films in Bergen Film Club's extensive program of films. I am your host, Joe Lawrence. Very glad to be back for another week. And we have a bit of a special episode. Today we're going to be... We're going to be chill. There is some big stuff coming up on the podcast, and uh, I just reached the end of my back catalogue, so this is the first time that I'm recording in about four weeks. So, nice to be back. Uh... But yeah, we've got some really cool episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks and a lot happening at Bergen Film Club and a lot happening in film in Bergen. So I just thought that we would take a bit of a chill episode. So we're not going to be talking about a film today, which is crazy, but I will be talking about some films. At Bergen Film Club, this episode is coming out 25th of, uh, of September. And the films that we are showing this week will be The Taking of Pelham, one, two, three, which is one of the last films that BFK hero and BFK now alum, Bender Bixness, will ever program. In this film, New York City Transit Police Lieutenant Zachary Garber's workday takes a turn for the worse when four men take 18 people hostage on the Pelham 123 train. This movie is a highly underrated, surprisingly funny and subversive take on a heist film. The film is considered to be one of the very best movies to come out of the 1970s. That is a little review written specifically by Bendik. So, you know, you have to trust his opinion because I I have not really found myself in an instance when he has been wrong about a film for me personally. So I'm sure that that will be good. October 1st, we are working with the Nordic Labour Film Festival. Uh, and I will link to their website in the show notes and in the social media post so you can go find out but that's going to be a really exciting event uh but yeah that's what the film club's got going on and very excitingly coming october there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff in bergen if you are around bergen international film festival or biff is making its uh, yearly return to bergen biff is norway's largest film festival the festival screens a great mix of new feature and documentary films from all around the world Biff has a dedicated focus on documentary film, but the audiences have the opportunity to see a number of fiction films, short films, and much, much more. And Bergen Film Club is once again working with them. It's very exciting. The lineup for Biff this year is really amazing, and I can't wait to see and talk about some of those films that are going to come out. Uh, so definitely, if you are in Bergen from the 18th of October, then there is going to be a whole array of films to go and see, which is going to be awesome. And maybe some podcast-related stuff. I guess you'll just have to see in a couple of weeks. But before then, in my own personal excitement news, uh, as some of you know or don't know, I became a member of Bergen Film Club 
uh, of the board earlier this year in January. And I am soon to be showing my first film that I've ever programmed, uh, which is kind of like the cyclical nature of life. Bendik and another board member are showing their last films, and I'm showing my first one this semester, so I'm very excited. So this film that I'm going to be talking about is a 2016 film called I Am Not Madame Bovary. This is a Chinese black comedy, wonderful, cool film that I'm really excited to talk about because this episode we are not talking about it. There was a lot of interest, I think, in Chinese cinema. And I think when you're trying to align it into the history of Western cinema in particular, it's kind of hard to understand where it comes from. We know a lot and very little about China, I think. It's just this kind of like huge entity that's kind of present, but not so much is known about it. So before we talk about I'm Not Man of Bovary, which is going to be next week's episode, we're going to talk about the history of Chinese cinema. So sit back and relax, and it's going to be a really cozy, nice, slow episode. A bit shorter than the normal ones, but then we'll be back with a really cool guest to talk about this first film that I'm going to program, which is super awesome. And yeah, so let's just dive right in into the history of Chinese cinema. So we're beginning at the turn of the century, 1896, when it all began. Motion pictures were first introduced to China at this time. China was one of the earliest countries to be exposed to this medium of film due to Louis Lumiere sending his cameraman to Shanghai a year after inventing cinematography. The first recorded screening of a motion picture in China took place in Shanghai on the 11th of August, 1896, uh, as a part of a variety bill as an act. The first Chinese film recording of the Peking opera Dingzhong Mountain was made in November of 1905 in Beijing. For the next decade, the production companies were mainly foreign-owned, particularly by Western companies, and the domestic film industry was centered on Shanghai, which was basically just assumed to be the thriving entrepot of, of the East, as since it was one of the largest cities, or if not the largest city in the Far East in terms of how the West perceives it. In 1913, the first independent Chinese screenplay, The Difficult Couple, was filmed in Shanghai by basically the the creators of real, like, original Chinese cinema, which was Zhang, Zhang Kui and Zhang Xixuan. So Zhang Xixuan then set up the first Chinese-owned film production company in 1916, producing the first full-length feature film, which was called Yang Guisheng, which was released in 1921, which was a docudrama about the killing of a Shanghai courtesan, although it was considered too crude, too uh, violent to be considered commercially successful at the time. During the 1920s, film technicians from the United States often trained Chinese technicians in Shanghai, and the American influence continued to be felt for the next two decades. Since film was in its early development stages, most Chinese silent films at the time were only comical skits or operatic shorts, and basically just parts of these overarching kind of entertainment collectives. And training was minimal at the technical aspect due to it being a period of experimental film. 
So after trial and error later, China was able to draw inspiration from its own traditional values and begin producing its own martial arts films, with the first being Burning of the Red Lotus Temple in 1928. This film was so successful at the box office, the star motion pictures Mingxing production later filmed 18 sequels, marking the beginning of China's esteemed martial arts films, which is awesome because that's so, it's so long ago and it's still very much existing today in 2023. Many imitators follow, including Yulian, Studios Red Heroine, which was made in 1928, which is uh, just a, not a ripoff, but the first ripoff. <laughs> it was during this period that some of the more important production companies first came to being, notably this Mingxing and the Shaw Brothers Tianyi, which means unique production company. Mingxing was founded by Zheng Zhengui and Zhang Xishuan in 1922, initially focusing on these comic shorts, including the oldest surviving complete Chinese film, Laborer's Love, in 1922. This soon shifted, however, however, due to feature films and family dramas, including Orphan Rescue's grandma kind of taking precedence in the public eye. Meanwhile, Tianyi, this production company, shifted their model towards folklore dramas and also pushing into foreign markers, such as their film White Snake in 1926, proved a typical example of their success in the Chinese communities of Southeast Asia. In 1931, the first Chinese sound film, Sing Song Girl Red Peony, was made, the product of a cooperation between Mingxing Film Company's image production and Pate Fraise, or Pate as it's known today, sound technology. The sound was discorded and played at the same time as the, the moving image. The first sound on film, Talkie, made in China was either Spring on Stage by Tianyi or Clear Sky After Storm by Great China Studio and Jinyan Studio. And then came musicals such as Song at Midnight, Street Angels, Tsoying Zhuzhuan, who was this uh, very big Chinese actor at the time. And musicals actually became a very popular film genre at this time in China. So this is 1930s kind of time. So whilst this was all happening in time was moving forward, then came the leftist movement in China. You can kind of view Chinese cinema history in a series of epochs, for example, or generations. So we are now in 2023 in the sixth generation, which we'll come to, which is, this is about the, the first generation that we're still in. So the first truly important quote-unquote Chinese films were produced at the beginning of the 30s with the advent of progressive or left-wing movement like Zheng Buguao's Spring Silkworms and Wu Yongyang's The Goddess. These films were noted for their emphasis on class struggle and external threats such as Japanese aggression, which we will come to, as well on their focus on the common people such as family or silk farmers in Spring Silkworms and a sex worker in The Goddess. In part due to the success of these kind of films, this post-1930 era is now often referred to as the first golden period of Chinese cinema. The leftist cinematic movement often revolves around the Western-influenced Shanghai, where filmmakers portrayed the struggling lower class of an overpopulated city, which would come to change in the future as the focus on certain things changed in China. Three production companies dominate the market in the early to mid-1930s, the newly formed Lianhua the, and the older and larger Mingxing and Tianyi. Both Mingxing and Lianhua's uh, leaned left, uh, or like the production team or the management perhaps were more left-leaning, while Tianyi continued to make less socially conscious fare, focusing more on these entertainment kind of films. 
Throughout the 1930s, the nationalists and the communists struggle for power and control over these major studios, and their influence can be seen in these films and the studios produced during this period, which is the sentiment that will come to be felt a lot stronger in the coming ages. So in 1937, the Japanese invasion of China began, in particular, notably the Battle of Shanghai, which ended this golden run in Chinese cinema. All production companies, except Xinhua Film Company, closed, and many of the filmmakers fled Shanghai, relocating to Hong Kong, the wartime nationalist capital Chongqing, and elsewhere. The Shanghai film industry, though severely curtailed, did not, however, stop, thus leading to this solitary island period, also known as So Island or Orphan Island, with Shanghai's foreign concessions serving as an island of production in the sea of Japanese-occupied territory. It was during this period that artists and directors who remained in the city had to walk a fine line between staying true to the leftist national beliefs and the Japanese pressures, and this is most amazingly detailed in director Bu Wanchang's Hua Mulan, also known as Mulan Joins the Army, which we all know is the story of a young Chinese peasant fighting against foreign invasion, uh, which we now know is the benevolent Disney film. And this was a particularly good example of Shanghai's continued film production in the midst of war. This period ended when Japan declared war on Western allies on the 7th of December 1941, and the solitary island of Shanghai was finally engulfed by the sea of Japanese occupation. With the, Shi- with the Shanghai industry firmly in Japanese control, films like Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere Promoting Eternity were produced, and at the end of World War II, one of the more controversial Japanese authorised companies, Manchukyo, Film Association would be separated, integrated into Chinese cinema. So despite the efforts of many directors to try and make these essentially anti-war, anti-Japanese films, eventually all of these were basically absolved into this much larger, much larger Japanese-controlled authority. So following the Japanese occupation, we now enter the second golden age. The film industry continued to develop after 1945, Production in Shanghai once again resumed as a new crop of studios took place in the Luanhua and Minqing studios had occupied in the previous decade. In 1945, Kai Chusheng returned to Shanghai to revive the Linhua name as the Linhua Film Society with Xi Dongsheng, Men Junmo, and Zheng Junli. This in turn became Kunlun Studios, which will go on to become one of the most important studios of the era. Kunlun Studios merged with seven other studios to form Shanghai Film Studio in 1949, putting out classics like The Spring River Flows East, Myriad of Lights, Crows and Sparrows, and Wandering of Three Hairs, The Orphan, also known as San Mao, The Little Vagabond. Many of these films show the disillusionment with the oppressive rule of Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party and the struggling oppression of a nation by war. The Spring River Flows East, a three-hour two-parter directed by Kai Chusheng and Cheng Chinli, was a particularly strong success. Its depiction of the struggles of the ordinary Chinese during the Second Sino-Japanese War, replete with biting social and political commentary, struck a chord with audience of the time. So it seems like a lot of films of these times, kind of the 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 notion of the government and the way that the China was arranged at the time allowed for these kind of very striking political commentaries, social commentaries, which is something that will become missing in the future in China. Meanwhile, companies like Wenhua Film Company moved away from the leftist tradition and explored the evolution and development of other dramatic genres. 
Wenhua treated post-war problems in universalistic and humanistic ways, avoiding the family narrative and melodramatic formula. Excellent examples of Wenhua's fare are its first two post-war films, Love Everlasting and Fake Bride Funny Bridegroom. Another memorable Wenhua film is Long Live the Misses, like Love Everlasting with an original screenplay by writer Eileen Chang. Wenhua's romantic drama Spring in a Small Town, a film by director Fei Mu, shortly prior to the revolution is often regarded by Chinese film critics as one of the most important films in the history of Chinese cinema. In 2005, Hong Kong Film Awards it as the best 100 years of film. Ironically, it was precisely its artistic quality and apparent lack of political grounding that led to its labelling by the communists as a rightist or reactionary, and the film was quickly forgotten by those on the mainland following the communist victory in China in 1949. However, with the China Films Archives reopening after the Cultural Revolution, something we'll also come to, a new print was struck from the original ne- negative, allowing Spring of the Small Town to find a new and admiring audience and to f- influence the entire new generation of filmmakers. Indeed, an acclaimed remake was made in 2002 by Tian Chuangzhuang, a Chinese Peking opera film, A Wedding in the Dream, by the same director, Fei Mu, was the first Chinese colour film. Very fun. So now we come to a new era, the communist era, or the early communist era. So at the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949, there was less than 600 movie theatres in the whole country of China. The government saw motion pictures as an important production art form and basically a tool for mass propaganda. The private studios in Shanghai, including Kunming, Wenhua, Guotai and Deitong, were at first encouraged to make new films. They made approximately 74 new films during the next two years, but soon ran into trouble, owing the furor over the Kunlun-produced drama The Life of Wu Jun, directed by Sun Yu and starring veteran Zhao Dan. The feature was accused in an anonymous article in People's Daily in 1951 of spreading feudal ideas. After the article was revealed to be penned by Mao Zedong, you know, the Chinese politician, the, the big... The big cheese of the communist era, the film was banned and the film and a film steering committee was formed to re-educate the film industry and the private studios were all incorporated into the state-run Shanghai Film Studio. Also in 1951, pre-revolution Chinese films, Hollywood and Hong Kong were banned. Productions made in these countries were banned. The Chinese Communist Party sought to tighten control over mass media, producing instead movies centering on peasants, soldiers and workers such as Bridge, The White Head Girl, and one of the production bases in the middle of all the transition was the Chunchun Film Studio. The Communist government solves the problem of a lack of film theatres by building mobile projection units which could tour the remote regions of China, ensuring that even the poorest could have access to films. Mobile projection teams during the Mao era typically included three to four workers who physically transported film infrastructure through a large geographic area mostly not covered by an electrical grid. Until the profusion of such teams in the 1950s, most rural people had not seen a film. The number of movie viewers hence increased sharply, particularly bolstered by the fact that film tickets were given out to workers and attendees for free and that it was compulsory to watch the films with admissions rising from 47 million in 1949 to 4.15 billion in 1959. By 1965, there was about 20,393 mobile film units. During the course of the Mao era, the majority of films were shown by such units and only a minority of films were actually watched in theatres. 
Work as a mobile projectionist was physically and technically demanding. As a result, women projectionists and all women mobile projection teams were promoted in Chinese media as an example of advancing gender equality under socialism or communism. <clears throat> in the 17 years between the founding of the People's Republic of China and the Cultural Revolution, 603 films and 8,342 reels of documentaries and newsreels were produced, sponsored mostly by communist propaganda by the government. For example, in Guerrilla on the Railroad, dated 1956, the Chinese Communist Party was depicted as the primary resistance force against the Second Sino-Japanese War. Chinese filmmakers were sent to Moscow to study the Soviet socialist realism style of filmmaking. The Beijing Film Academy established in 1950 and in 1956, the Beijing Film Academy was officially opened. One important film of this time is This Life of Mine, directed by Shi Hu, which follows an old beggar reflecting on his life as a policeman working for the various regimes since 1911. The first widescreen film was produced in 1960. Animated films using a variety of folk arts such as paper cuts, shadow plays, puppetry and traditional paintings also were very popular for entertaining and educating children. The most famous of these, in the classic Havoc in Heaven, was made by Wan Liaming of the Wan Brothers and one outstanding film at the London International Film Festival. The thawing of censorship in 1956-57 to 57, known as the A Hundred Flowers Campaign and the early 60s led to more indigenous Chinese films being made, which were less reliant on Soviet counterparts. During this campaign, the sharpest criticisms came from the satirical comedies of Lu Ban, before the new director arrives, exposes the hierarchical relationships occurring between the cadres, while his next film, The Unfinished Comedy, was labelled as a poisonous weed during the anti right movement, and Lu was banned from directing for life. The Unfinished Comedy was only screened after Mao's death. Other noteworthy films produced during this period were adaptations of literary classics such as Sang Hu's The New Year Sacrifice and Shui Hua's The Lin Family Shop. The most prominent filmmakers of this era were Xi Jin, whose three films in particular, Women Basketball Player No. 5, The Red Detachment of Women and The Two Stage Sisters, exemplify China's increased expertise at filmmaking during the time. Films made during this period are polished and exhibit high production value and elaborate sets. While Beijing and Shanghai remained the centres of production, between 1957 and the 60s, the government built regional studios in Guangzhou, Qi'an and Chengdu to encourage representation of ethnic minority in film. Chinese cinema began to directly address the issues such as ethnic minorities during the late 50s and early 60s in films like Five Golden Flowers, Third Sister Louis, Serfs and Ashima. So now, in the Cultural Revolution, the film industry was severely restricted. Almost all previous films were banned, and only a few new ones were produced, the so-called revolutionary model operas. The most notable of these was a ballet of the revolutionary opera The Red Detachment of Women, directed by Pang Wenchuan and Fu Jie in 1970. Feature film production came to almost a standstill in the years of 1967 to 72. Movie production revived after 72 under the strict jurisdiction of the Gang of Four until 1976, when they were overthrown. The few films that were produced during this period, such as 1975's Breaking with Old Ideas, were highly regulated in terms of plot and characterization. And the Gang of Four, if you don't know, was a Maoist political faction composed of the Chinese Communist Party officials, and yeah, they were very controlling and limiting of the time. So now that was the Cultural Revolution, now we have the Post-Cultural Revolution. 
In the years immediately following the Cultural Revolution, the film industry again flourished as a medium for popular entertainment. Production rose steadily from 19 features in 1977 to 125 in 1986. Domestically produced films played to large audience and tickets for foreign festival films. Uh, foreign film festivals sold quickly. The industry tried to revive crowds by making more innovative, innovative, and exploratory films like their counterparts in the West. Chinese cinema grew significantly in the late 70s, and in 1979, the annual box office emissions reached a peak of 29.3 billion sold tickets, equivalent to the average of 30 films per person. Chinese cinema continued to prosper into the 1980s, with annual box office emissions standing at 23.4 billion tickets sold, equivalent to 29 films per person. In terms of box office admissions, this period represents the peak of sales in the history of Chinese box office. High ticket sales were driven by low ticket prices, with the cinema ticket typically costing between um, 0.1 yen and 0.3 yen, which is about 6 American cents and 19 American cents, so very cheap. By the early 1980s, there was 162,000 projection units in China, primarily composed of mobile movie units, uh, which showed films outdoors in both rural and urban areas. A number of films during this period drew box office admissions in the hundreds of millions. China's highest grossing film in the box office admissions was Legend of the White Snake, with an estimated 700 million admissions, followed by In-Laws, Full House of Joy, and The Undaunted Wandang, with more than 600 million ticket sales each. The highest grossing foreign film was the Japanese film Kimiyo Funda no Kawa o Watare, which in 1978 sold more than 330 million tickets, followed by an Indian film Caravan, which released in 1979 and sold about the same. In the late 1980s, the film industry fell on hard times, faced with the dual problems of the competition from other forms of entertainment and a concern on the part of authorities that many of the popular thriller and martial art films were socially unacceptable. In 1986, the film industry was transferred from the Ministry of Culture to the newly formed Ministry of Radio, Cinema and Television to bring under stricter control and management and to strengthen supervision over production. The end of the Cultural Revolution brought the release of Scar Dramas, which depicted the emotional traumas left behind by this period. The best known of these probably is Xi Jin's Hibiscus Town, although they could see as late as the 1990s with Tian Zhang Zhang's The Blue Kite. In 1980s, open criticism of certain past communist policies was encouraged by Deng Xiaoping as a way to reveal the excess of the Cultural Revolution and the earlier anti-rightist campaign, also helping to legitimize Deng's new policy of reform and opening up. For instance, the Best Picture Prize in the inaugural 1981 Golden Rooster Awards was given to two scar dramas, Evening Rain and Legend of Tianyun Mountain, also made by Xi Jun. Many scar dramas were made by members of the fourth generation whose own careers or lives had suffered during the events in question, with the younger fifth generation directors such as Tian leading to focus on less controversial subjects of the immediate present or the distant past. Official enthusiasm for scar dramas waned by the 90s when younger filmmakers began to confront negative aspects of the Mao era. The Blue Kite, though sharing a similar subject as the earlier scar dramas, was more realistic in style and was made only through obfuscating its real script. Shown abroad, it was banned from the release in mainland China, while Tian himself was banned from making films for nearly a decade afterward. After the 1980 Tiananmen Square protests and massacre, few if any scar dramas were domestically released in mainland China.
So now we're coming into more recent times, which is the rise of the fifth generation, which began in the mid-late 1980s. The rise of this so-called fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers brought increased popularity to Chinese cinema abroad. Most of the filmmakers who made up the fifth generation had graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in 1982 and included Zhang Yimou, Tian Zhuangzhuang, Chen Kaige, Zhang Zhenzhao, Li Xiaohong, and Wu Zhenyao, and many, many others. These graduates con constituted the first group of filmmakers to graduate since the Cultural Revolution, and they soon jettisoned traditional methods of storytelling and opted for a more free and unorthodox symbolic approach. After the so-called scholar literature and fiction had paved the way for frank discussion, Zhang Zhengguo's One of Eight and Chen Kaige's Yellow Earth, in particular, were taken to mark the beginning of the fifth generation. The most famous of the fifth generation directors, Chen Kaige and Zhang Yimou, went on to produce celebrated works such as The King of the Children, Judo, Raise the Red London, and Farewell, My Concubine, which were not only acclaimed by Chinese cinema goers, but by Western art house audiences. Chan Zhangzhang's films, though less well-known by Western viewers, were not well-noted by directors such as Martin Scorsese. It was during this period that Chinese cinema began reaping the rewards of the international attention, including the 1988 Golden Bear for Red Sorghum and the 1992 Golden Lion for the story of Qiu Ju, the 1993 Palme d'Or for Farewell My Concubine, and three Best Foreign Language Film nominations at the Academy Awards. All these award-winning films starred actress Gong Li, who became the fifth generation's most recognizable star, especially to international audiences. Diverse in style and subject, the fifth generation director's films range from black comedies to the esoteric, but they shared a common rejection of the socialist realist tradition worked by the earlier Chinese filmmakers in the communist eras. Other notable fifth generation directors include Wu Jinyu, Hu Mei, Li Xiaohong, and Zhu Jiaowen. Fifth generation filmmakers reacted against the idealistic ideological purity of cultural revolution cinema. By relocating to regional studios, they began to explore the actual they began to explore the actuality of local culture in a somewhat documentarian fashion. Instead of stories depicting heroic military struggles, the films were built out of the drama of ordinary people's daily lives. They also retained a political edge, but aimed at exploring issues rather than recycling approved policy. While cultural revolution films used characters, the younger directors favoured psychological depth along the lines of European cinema. They adopted complex plots, ambiguous symbolism, and evocative imagery. Some of the bolder works with political overtones were actually banned by Chinese authorities. These films came with the creative genres of stories, new style of shooting as well, directors utilising extensive colour and long shots to present and explore history and structure of national culture. As a result of the new films being so intricate, the films were for more educated audiences than anything. The new style was profitable for some and helped filmmakers to make big strides in the business, and it allowed directors to get away from the reality and show their artistic sense. The fourth generation also returned to prominence. Giving their label after the rise of the fifth generation, these directors whose careers were stalled by the Cultural Revolution who were professionally trained prior to 1966. Wu Tianming, in particular, made outstanding contributions by helping to finance major fifth-generation directors under the auspices Shen Film Studio, which he overtook in 1983, while continuing to make films like Old Well and King of the Masks. The fifth-generation movement ended, in part, after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests and massacre. Although its major directors continued to produce notable works, 
Several of its filmmakers went into self-imposed exile. Wu Qianmeng moved to the US, but he returned later. Huang Zhanjian left for Australia, while many others went on to television-related work. During a period when socialist dramas were beginning to lose viewership, the Chinese government began to involve itself deeper into the world of popular culture and cinema by creating the official genre of main melody, inspired by Hollywood's strides in musical dramas. In 1987, the Ministry of Radio, Film and Television issued a statement encouraging the making of movies which em emphasized the main melody to invigorate natural spirit and national pride. The expression main melody refers to the musical term leitmotif, which translates to the theme of our times, which scholars suggest is representative of China's socio-political climate and the cultural context of popular cinema. These main melody films, still produced regularly in modern times, try to emulate the commercial mainstream by the use of Hollywood star music and special effects. A significant feature of these films is the incorporation of a red song, which is a song written as propaganda to support the People's Republic of China. By revolving the film around the motif of a red song, the film is able to gain traction that the box office's songs are generally thought to be more accessible than a film. Theoretically, once the red song dominates the charts, it will stir an interest in the film which accompanies it, and also the People's Republic of China. Main melody dramas are often subsidized by the state and have free access to government and military personnel. The Chinese government spends between 1 and 2 million RMBs annually to support the production of films in the main melody genre. August 1st Film Studios, the film and TV production of the People's Liberation Army, is a studio that produces main melody cinema. Main melody films which often depict past military engagements are often biopics of first generation uh, CCP leaders and have won several Best Pictures awards at the Golden Rooster Awards, which is China's own Oscars, I suppose. Some of the more famous main melody dramas include the 10-hour epic Decisive Engagement, directed by Kai Jiawei, Yang Guangwen and Wei Lian, The Opium War, directed by Xi Jin, and The Founding of a Republic, directed by Han Sangpeng, and the fifth generation of Huang Zhangjing. The, foundation, the Founding of an Army was commissioned by the government to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the People's Liberation Army, and is the third installment of the Founding of a Republic series. The film featured many young Chinese pop singers that are already well-established in the industry, including Li Yingfen, Li Huaren, and Lei Zhang, so as to further the film's reputation as a main melody drama. So now we come to the sixth generation. The post-1990 era has been labelled the return of amateur filmmaking as the state censorship policies after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest and massacre produced an edgy underground film movement loosely referred to as the sixth generation. Owing to the lack of state funding and backing, these films were shot quickly and cheaply using materials like 16mm film and digital video, and mostly non-professional actors and actresses producing a documentary feel, often with long takes, handheld cameras, ambient sound, more akin to the Italian neorealism and cinema verite that the often lush, far more considered productions of the fifth generation. Unlike the fifth generation, though, the sixth generation brings a more interviewable individualistic, anti-romantic life view and pays far closer attention to the contemporary urban life, especially as affected by disorientation and rebellion and dissatisfaction with China's contemporary social marketing, economic tensions and comprehensive cultural background. Many were made with an extremely low budget. Uh, an example is Jia Zhangke, who shoots on digital film and formerly on 16mm. Wang 
Xiaoshui's the days was made for around ten thousand U.S. dollars, for example. The title and subjects of many of these films reflect the sixth generation's concerns. The sixth generation takes an interest in marginalized individuals and the less representative fringes of society. For example, Zhang Wan's handheld Beijing Bastards focuses on the young youth punk subculture, featuring artists like Kui Jian, Du Wei, and He Yong, frowned upon by many state authorities, while Zhao Zhangke's debut film, Zhao Wu, concerns a provincial pickpocket. As the sixth generation gained international exposure, many subsequent movies were joint ventures and projects within international backers, but remained quite resolutely low-key and low-budget. Jai's platform was funded in part by Takeshi Kitano's production house, while his Still Life was shot on HD video. Still Life was a surprise in addition, and a Golden Lion winner of 2006 Venice International Film Festival. Still Life, which concerns provincial workers around the Three Gorges region, sharply contrasts with the works of the fifth generation Chinese directors like Zhang Yimou and Chen Kiyoge, who were at the time producing House of the Flying Daggers and The Promise. It features no star of international renown and was acted mostly by non-professionals. Many sixth-generation films have highlighted the negative attributes of China's entry into the modern capitalistic market. Liang's Blind Shaft, for example, is an account of two murderous conmen in the unregulated and notoriously dangerous mining industry of northern China. Li refused to tag of sixth-generation, although admitted he was not fifth-generation. While Jia Zhangke's The World emphasizes the emptiness of globalization in the backdrop of an internationally themed amusement park. Some of the more prolific sixth generation directors to have emerged are Wang Jiaoshui, who made The Days, Beijing Bicycle, Solo My Son, Zhang Wan, Beijing Bastards, East Palace, West Palace, Jia Zhangke, Xiao Wu, Unknown Pleasures, Platform the World, many others, and Liu Ye, Zhuzhu River, Summer Palaces. One of the directors of their generation who did not share most of the concerns of the six generations was Liu Chuan, who made Kekchili, Mountain Patrol, and City of Life and Death. And that brings us to the 21st century. Seeing how China's become such a staple in cinema box office and that it is a huge capitalistic enterprise right now with a lot of money sitting reserved in China in its own film production areas. It's really impressive to see where it came from and despite the huge governmental control and censorship, there still exists artists and directors and writers within this sphere who still press to define genre and make commentary on on their on their own country and their own government against going against the grain and speaking up for those who deserve a voice, which is really powerful. And I believe that it is definitely something that we will see in I'm Not Madame Bovary when we talk about it next week. Um, but yeah, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was super interesting for me to research this, and I'll put the, the references in the show notes too, along with reference to Biff and the Nordic Labour Film Festival. But thank you very much for listening, and we will be back to our regular scheduling and episode form next week. And I hope you've enjoyed and I hope that you've learned a lot. But I've been Joe Lawrence. This has been a real thing. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. 
Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbrei-Bern and Mamina Nazmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.